Okay, so this morning we're going to be taking a look. We're kind of continuing our New Testament survey, and we're going to be taking a look at the book of James. And also we're going to spend a little time looking at Jude as well. So we're going to spend most of our time in the book of James, and that's what's on your handout. And then we'll just spend a little time at the end taking a look at Jude. So when we think about the book of James, uh, we can really fundamentally think about it as a book of wisdom. And we know that wisdom isn't just the knowledge that we have. It's not just what's in our head, but it's a process of using that knowledge, the process of using our beliefs and applying that to our lives. So applying that knowledge to our daily lives. And in a Christian sense, Christian wisdom is using that knowledge, applying it to our lives to glorify God. Okay? So when we think about the book of James, we can think about it that way. We'll see what, as we look at the book, we kind of see what wisdom looks like in God's kingdom. So why was James written? It was written at a time, it was one of the earliest letters that we have in the New Testament, and it was written soon after Stephen was martyred. And so it was written, in one sense, to encourage Christians who are facing persecution. Uh, so Stephen was martyred, he was, he was stoned, and there would have been a lot of fear in the early church. And so James is writing this to calm them, to encourage them. But also, his main purpose is to exhort Christians to pursue wisdom. He wants to encourage wise living. The book of Proverbs declares that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we're going to take a look at James chapter 4, and we're going to kind of see how he describes wisdom here. So let's just look at chapter 4, verse 4 through 10. We're just going to read that. Okay. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So in, we, in these verses, we see that wisdom is an issue of repentance and faith. It's turning away from the world in turning to Christ. So James wrote his letter so that Christians would know how to apply the gospel to their lives so that they might live wisely. So the author of this book is James. It's Jesus's earthly brother. As I said before, we think it was written uh, in 45 AD. James was martyred in 62 AD, so we know that it was before that time period. Uh, but most scholars believe it was the earliest letter written in the New Testament. So when we study the book of James, understanding context is very important. We talk a lot about this at Christ Community Church, how when we study scripture, we need to study scripture in light of scripture. 
So we have to study scripture in its proper context. And if you don't do that in the book of James, you can become very, very confused. For example, James 2.24 says, You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Okay? So let's put that against Romans 3.28, which says, We hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So if you took those two verses and just plucked them out of the Bible without any context and you put them against each other, you would say, hey, what's going on here? There's a big contradiction. So are James and Paul contradicting each other? To start with, we know that James and Paul accepted one another as fellow believers, and that's kind of the first thing we have to see. In Galatians 2.9, James extends the right hand of fellowship to Paul, and in Acts 21, James praises Paul's ministry. So we see through Scripture that James and Paul didn't think that they disagreed, but how do we reconcile the two and be faithful to Scripture? How do we reconcile those two verses? And I think that we, where we can start to answer that question is we have to understand the context in which these letters were written. We've talked about how, through this New Testament survey, much of the New Testament was written to contradict false teaching. That's why these guys begin to write letters to the church. That's why they begin to write these things down, because false teachers had crept in, and they were teaching all kinds of wild things. So that's when uh, they started writing uh, these things to refute these false teachings. So... Paul is kind of speaking to a different type of false teacher when he writes Romans that James is speaking to when he writes his letter. So when Paul uses the word justified, he's employing it in the legal sense. It's, it's kind of like the word, in the way he means it here, it means being declared not guilty. So in Romans, Paul is addressing false teachers who are teaching that God declared people guilty or innocent based upon their actions or based upon works. So they were teaching Jesus plus something else, Jesus plus works. So Paul's countering these false teachers by arguing that we are justified by God by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not Jesus plus works, not Jesus plus something else. So this is what, when Paul is writing his letter to the Romans, This is the false teaching that he's counteracting. And so when he uses the word justified, he's meaning a declaration of righteousness. So in Romans, if you want to think of it, we're in the courtroom, okay? In James, we've moved more to the court of public opinion. So when James uses the word justified, he means a public vindication of a personal claim or a demonstration of righteousness, So Paul, when he's using it, he means a declaration of righteousness. James is talking about a demonstration of that righteousness in someone's life. So James, when he writes his letter, he's counteracting false teachers. They were wealthy Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and these guys were teaching that works were of little to no importance in the life of a Christian. They were were basically saying that you could believe correctly, and as long as you believed correctly, that you could live your life any way you wanted. So they're saying, as long as you had the right beliefs, you could go fulfill all of your sinful desires. Don't worry about it. God will forgive you in the end. 
you don't need to pursue righteousness. So that's the false teaching that James is addressing in his letter. And so we have to get that in, in our head as we read James. So they were teaching a cheap grace. But James here in his letter is arguing that Christian faith is not justified by empty beliefs, but by works that provide evidence of a true faith. So both James and Paul agree that justification is by faith alone, but never by faith that is alone. Instead, faith is always accompanied by a life of obedience and love and a life that in the end will produce fruit. Okay, any questions about that? Because I know that that can be a real sticking point uh, when we look at James. All right? Okay. So let's take a look at some of the themes that we see in this letter. Uh, One of the first themes that we see, and a theme that we see throughout the letter, is faithful submission to God. James is very big on this. According to the book of James, the path to a blessed life in the kingdom begins with submission to the Lord. Any wisdom that has anything else as its starting point is foolishness. So let's read James chapter 3, 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make it. So we see the contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And we see that they really stand in direct opposition to one another. In fact, the world's wisdom is more than foolishness. It's an affront against the Lord. 4.4 says, Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an, becomes an enemy of God. So James is calling us to humble ourselves before the Lord, and he tells us that if we do this, he will lift us up. So this motivates us to action. 428 says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So these are simple and powerful words, and we are called into action. We are called to good works. So another thing that we see uh, running throughout the the book of James is practical obedience. This is a great book for us to look at to see what the Christian life should look like. James spends a lot of time here. To James, obedience to God's word is the ultimate display of wisdom. 125 says, But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. True blessing, according to James, comes from applying God's word into our daily lives. It's studying God's word, believing it, and then acting it out in our everyday lives, implementing it in our lives. 
You know, our faith, the Christian faith, is not a passive faith. It's the active process of continually heeding God's word, striving to implement it. It's more than just a belief system. Our faith, the Christian faith, is a way of life, a faith with implications on how we think, on how we act, on how we treat other people, on how we love our neighbor. So James really is telling us as Christians that we are to be doers of the word. We're not just to be studiers of the word. We're not just to be believers of the word, but we are to be doers of the word as well. So what are some of the ways that James calls on us to live our lives in this way? In chapter 2, he calls Christians to love others generously. We learn that there is a temptation among the churches. We see this in chapter 2 that uh, in the church in Jerusalem, there's a temptation to show favoritism to people based upon their worldly prestige. Okay? So they were treating the wealthy better than they were treating the poor. They were treating those with power better than they were treating those without any power. So James is calling them back from this. And he's doing this by pointing out the merciful love that Jesus Christ has displayed towards them. Not because they were rich, not because they were wealthy, not because they were powerful, but because Christ loved them and he laid down his life for them, for the poor and the rich. So let's read 2.13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. So to show favoritism is to forget that we have been shown grace by God, grace that we as sinners didn't deserve. The fact that we have received such mercy in Christ should compel us to show this type of mercy towards others. The next thing James calls us to is careful speech. And in chapter, we see this mostly in chapter 3, we see a lot of instructions concerning speech. The way we talk about God and the way we talk about others matters. And he calls on us to be careful with our speech as we do this. So let's read 3, 6 through 11. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So we see the contrast here from and in this scripture, to me, can be very stinging. I think we can find ourselves there. With the same mouth that we're blessing God, we can often be tearing people down. We can find ourselves there pretty easily. And so this is something we have to take seriously. James is showing us how dangerous the human tongue can be. That a tiny spark, he's kind of comparing it to this tiny spark The tongue is a tiny part of the body, but it can engulf a mighty forest. It can bring people down. It can bring you down. So a loose tongue reveals lack of self-control. And a lack of self-control 
reveals a void of reverence and submission towards God. So an untamed tongue reveals a lack of wisdom, and it can invite judgment from others. It can invite judgment from God instead of blessing. So what comes out of our mouths, whether it's slander or praise, gossip or words of encouragement, silence or prayer, our speech really reflects the condition of our hearts. And for that reason, James exhorts Christians to tame their tongue and take their speech seriously. So as we move on to chapter 4, James begins to uh, really deal with how, how we look at conflict. So in 4.1 he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You know, this is a profound thought. The thought that James gives us here is that it's something that really can transform our relationships when we begin to understand this. Our fights, our issues with other people, our quarrels don't usually come because of something the other person did or because we had a bad day or because we're tired or because our personalities don't click. They come from these desires that battle within us. Verse 2 says, You want something, but you don't get it, so you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you don't ask God. You know, when we don't get what we think we deserve or what we have in our mind, the way another person should treat us, we get angry about it. And it's because of selfishness. It's because we're focused on our own self, our focus is internal and not external on other people. We place expectations on people that are unrealistic, and when they don't add up to what we want them to add up to, we get angry. And this is what causes quarrels and fights among us as a body of believers in personal relationships, and we have to be careful with this because it can be a never-ending cycle. So throughout the book of James, he talks about, we see that he talks about relationships, quarrels. He talks about uh, generous love. He talks about obedience. And he also talks about our speech. And then he also talks about wealth. How do we deal uh, with money, with power, with wealth? In 1, uh, 9 through 11, let's just read that real quick. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So James here is reminding us that worldly riches are ultimately fleeting. They're going away. And if we put too much focus on them, we can really, really struggle. Let's read uh, thirteen, chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him as a, is a sin. So this life is short. We often think that we can control it, that we can have it all mapped out. We're called to submit our lives to God, to trust him for these things. James is warning us against false comfort and pride that can come from wealth, that can come from having a job. Uh, We have to realize that as Americans, even, you know, we think as Americans, rich people are people who have a ton of money. But compared to the rest of the world, as Americans, most of us are extremely wealthy. Most folks... Uh, in the world live off of less than $2,000 a year. And so most people in here are extremely wealthy compared to the rest of the world and very comfortable. So we have to realize this is a big trap for us. It's not just a big trap for those who make a ton of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a trap for us uh, here in the United States because we're a very wealthy country and, and we're very comfortable in a lot of ways. So what do we do uh, with our wealth? What do we do with our money? I don't think James is calling us here to a vow of poverty. And he gives us some positive examples on how to handle money appropriately, mainly by using it to bless others instead of simply hoarding it for ourselves. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So because we've been richly blessed in Christ, we're called and we are free to use our money to bless others uh, in our community. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about what wisdom looks like in the kingdom of God, and I just want to run through a few points of application that I think we can take away from this letter. One is to pursue true wisdom. You know, we're often tempted to look to this world for wisdom. So we need to let this letter be both a warning and an encouragement that the wisdom that leads to a blessed life comes only from God and his word. So we need to let God's word be the roadmap of our lives. We need to humble ourselves. We need to submit ourselves to God daily as James commands us to do. Number two, we need to examine our relationships. James in this letter calls us to avoid favoritism. And really this causes us to kind of take a step back to look at our social interactions. Who are our friends? Who are the people we're spending time with? Who are the people we're reaching out to? Do they all look like us? Do they all share the same socioeconomic status Are we loving people indiscriminately? We just need to keep our minds open to that and be mindful of how God has loved us in Christ and how he's called us to serve the least of these. And number three, I think we need to commit to meditating on God's word and particularly on this letter. James defines the Christian's faith as a faith that produces good work. We need to realize that faith without works is dead. And we need to hold this example up to our lives. It can be like a mirror for us. And it can help us to see how we're doing. 
Is there fruit in our lives? So that's James' letter in a nutshell. I know it's really quick. Uh, I wish we could spend a lot more time on it, but that's what we've got. Does anybody have any questions? Okay. We're just going to spend a few minutes looking at Jude. So Jude uh, is a very short letter. It's 25 verses long. You guys could all probably read it uh, on your way home from church today if you're not driving. Uh, You could take a look at it. It's a really quick letter. Uh, Most folks believe it was written around 65 A.D., some say mid-70s. Everybody agrees that it was written by Jude, uh, who was the earthly brother of Jesus and James. Verse 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Pretty clear cut there. The letter was written as an exhortation to the church, much like uh, James's letter, to encourage the church. Let's read uh, verse 3 here in Jude. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude intended to write addressing their common salvation, but he changed his subject to an exhortation to contend for the faith. So why did he shift his focus in this letter? We get the answer in verse 4. Verse 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we have these pesky false teachers sneaking in. And it's pretty amazing how we see God using these false teachers to kind of flesh out the truth of the gospel. And here we see that they were designated for this condemnation. Just something to think about there. So these false teachers had crept in. They were teaching this kind of lawless libertarianism. A lot of uh, the same type of theology that the false teachers were teaching in the letter to James. So they were basically saying, you can live however you want. Do what you want to do. You can pursue any sinful desire because God will forgive you anyway. So again, they were teaching a cheap grace. And really, when we look at our society, uh, especially in this area, especially in the Bible Belt, we see that there are a lot of folks who live this way right now. They proclaim Christ. They proclaim to be Christians. At some point, they've made a profession of faith. They've walked the aisle. They've been baptized a lot of times when they were kids, uh, you know, because they didn't want to go to hell. Who wants to go to hell, right? Jesus was kind of their get-out-of-hell card, but really, he's never been the Lord of their life. They don't want to pursue his ways. They don't want to live in obedience. They want to live as they please. They have no desire to live the way Jesus has commanded them to. But when we truly come to faith, Jesus becomes the Lord of our life. We're called to pursue his ways. We certainly don't do that perfectly. We fight our flesh for the rest of our lives. But the desires of our heart 
have to change. And the Holy Spirit works in us to give us a desire to yearn to live for Him. And when we don't do that, we mourn over our sin. We're distraught over our sin, and we are brought to repentance, and that's really grace. But these false teachers were teaching that you simply live how you see fit. You do what feels good. You do what feels right for you. And they were denying Christ's place as Lord of our lives. So Jude uh, spends the next 12 verses, verse 5 through 16, kind of giving these biblical analogies to describe the certain judgment that these false teachers are going to face. So he uses the analogy of Egypt, and you can kind of read through those verses and see all these, but he uses the analogy of Egypt, the analogy of rebellious angels, and the analogy of Sodom and Gomorrah. And really he's using these to remind his readers of God's judgment, which they, at this point, kind of have seemed to have forgotten. In verse 8, we see that the false teachers are relying on their own dreams, They're using subjective experiences and emotional experiences, proclaiming that these experiences are messages from God, and they're doing this so that they can be led into defiling the flesh and disobeying God. So they're proclaiming that they've gotten these messages, that they've had these dreams that say they can do X and Y, and it's okay. Uh, But these things are really sins against, against God. So in verse 11, Jude uses the examples of Cain, Balaam, and Korea to illustrate the character of these false teachers. So through these examples, he's showing them to be greedy. He's showing them to be uh, folks who are really out for themselves. They are seeking selfish gain, and they're rebelling against God. In verse 14 and 15, he points to their future judgment by using a quotation out of the Jewish work, the Book of Enoch. And you can see that in those verses. So the book of Jude concludes with a final exhortation, a call to persevere in the true faith. And we see that in 17 through 25. So in these scripture, in these verses, Jude calls on the church to build itself up in the faith and to pray in the Holy Spirit. He calls on them to keep themselves in the love of God and to show mercy on everyone, even their enemies, even the false teachers. And the book ends with the beautiful doxology in uh, verses 24 and 25, and I'm just going to conclude with that this morning. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's just pray and then we'll uh, break for a few minutes. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the scriptures that we've been looking at today, that we can know uh, more about you, that you've revealed to us your character You've shown us uh, just your great love and mercy for us. Father, we know that that you're the the Lord of our lives and that we need to see you that way. 
We need to strive to serve you, to obey you, to live out our Christian faith in our daily lives, to be a light in a dark world. Father, we just pray this morning that you would help us to do that, that you would give us the courage, the strength, the mindfulness to seek you every day and to serve those who surround us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.